Okay. Let's get serious. Titus 1, 5 through 9. This is the last episode of this series. Okay? So if you've missed some, missed some episodes, go back and, and binge listen. Uh, not on Netflix, but on summitbiblechurch.org. You can catch all nine episodes there. Probably good for you to listen in one long, sit down and listen through it all together. It would make a lot more sense to you probably as opposed to catching one episode here or there. I, real quick, I did say last week, for those of you who are listening, that I would address, uh, you know I got behind last week and I didn't finish all from last week and so that messed things up. But I said that I would address this week, when I got to verse 9, the issue concerning, their question concerning, can women be pastors? I am not going to do that. I don't have the time today. I don't know how to, I don't, I know how to address it. I just don't know when and in what format that's going to take place. I might send out an email of sorts to the church with some good resources for you. And uh, the reason that's even a question today is because there are churches who have uh, women pastors. So just so you understand, our position is we believe biblically that is not okay. That is not the right thing to do. The office of pastor, elder, overseer, shepherd is for qualified men. So with that, we need to finish the qualifications that are listed here in these verses, and also deal with verse 9, and I need to do that in approximately 30, 35 minutes, because we also have communion today, and that's what we're going to do. So I'm going to move a little bit quicker, so turn up the speed of your listening, and let's take off. Chapter 1, verse 5 of Titus. If you're not there, uh, please turn there, and if you're using a blue church Bible, you can turn to page 998, if I didn't already say that. Let's read through the section. We'll pick up where we left off. The Apostle Paul writing to his co-worker in the ministry, in the gospel ministry, his faithful co-worker who is on the island of Crete and has been left behind to take care of some matters concerning the church or the churches, their local communities of God's people that exist there on that island, said this to Titus, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders or pastors or shepherds or overseers, same Different terms, speaking of the same person or office within the church. Appoint elders in every town as I directed you, or every place where there's a, a collection or assembly of God's people. If anyone is above reproach, so then he lays out the criteria that Titus is to use in selecting these individuals. So if they don't measure up to this criteria, then they cannot be an elder. They are essential qualifications, which is reflected in the title of these sermons. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Verse 7, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must these are absolutes. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also able to rebuke those who contradict it. That's our passage. So we left off in the middle of the list of virtues that we see there in verse 8. That's where we left off last week. We're picking right up where we left off to catch anything uh, that was said before, you got to go online and, and catch it there. So, a qualified elder um, not only cannot be guilty of the vices that are found in verse 7, 
So he cannot be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or grief or gain. He can't be guilty of those, but he also, in order to be qualified, he also must possess the virtues of verse 8. So it's not simply about you can't be this, but it's you can't be this and you must be this in order to be qualified. And remember, beloved, I'm sure you do, all of you, whether you are uh, striving, you certainly all cannot be striving to be elders because you're not all men. But all of you should be striving to have your lives measure up to what primarily is a mature Christian person, godliness, that's reflected here in these qualifications. So you should, you should be examining yourself in light of these and also know what it looks like or what a qualified leader of the church looks like and doesn't look like, all right? So that you, as a church body, can remove those men who don't qualify if they don't qualify, remove them, work to remove them, or, and or, appoint the men who truly do qualify, okay? And if you, God ever moves you along to another church, these things are matter. These things matter. If you're going to give yourself to leadership, you should make sure it's godly leadership, yeah? Yes, all right. So, he must also, the elder, possess the virtues of verse 8. And last time we covered three of the six listed. So the first one was hospitable, hospitable. Uh, first, or Titus 1.8, if you could pop that back up. And go ahead and leave that up for a few, a few moments as I kind of work through these words together. I'm just going to say hospitable again. Go back and listen. But, I mean, just in a nutshell, the man must be devoted to the welfare of others. That's the truth of hospitality. He's that demonstrates that he really is devoted to the welfare of others, caring for others, helping others, extending himself, sacrificing for the good of others, which is demonstrated in the realities of hospitality. He must be a lover of good. These are, again, what we covered last week. A promoter of virtue is what it literally means, a promoter of virtue. He must be an advocate or supporter of goodness or righteousness. On the flip side of that, then, he must not be someone who champions or promotes what is immoral or wicked or sinful. If he does, he does not belong in eldership. Self-controlled. I told you last time, it is also translated in some other Bibles as sensible, which I prefer that translation. The thought here is this, that he must not be impulsive, but rather in control of his mind and emotions, acting in accordance with wisdom and prudence. So it has both ideas of sensible and self-control. He must not be ruled by his fluctuating emotions, which every person has, huh? every person has, but rather continually choose to live according to godly wisdom, priorities, and commitments. And beloved, with all these things, it doesn't mean he does this perfectly, 100%, all the time, but that is or must be the pattern of his life. So can he fail here and there? You, not only can he, he will. But if, it, if he is known for his failures in these areas, then he does not qualify. He must be known for being self-controlled and being sensible, not the opposite. He must be known for being hospitable and being a lover of good, not the opposite. Next in the list now, where we're picking up, is upright. Upright. Now, you guys don't. You guys probably know what that means. It, it's talking about, obviously, um, the elder must have good posture. Right? 
like a, like a military man. James, you have good pot. I can see it right now. Look at you. Boom. Even the way you're sitting. Right? And so you already got this one in the bag, my friend. All right? I don't know how you do on the other stuff, but uh, I hope pretty good because you help lead our youth. So I hope you're doing, you know, fairly good, not failing in any of these other areas too badly. But, um, you know, I, you laugh because I think you know it, it's not what it means, but if upright can mean that, the, the English word can mean that, when we, it can be used to refer that way, like upright, you know, he's very, he stands very upright, refer to good posture. And for some people, this is very important. I found a, an article about good posture and, and how important it was. It said, quote, imagine a strong, powerful, confident person standing in front of you. What kind of posture does that person have? Undoubtedly, the person in front of you is standing tall with an open chest and a head held high. It's a person who looks ready to take on the world. Okay. And so I guess that's, you know, that would be important, you know, if you're a leader of people or a company or something, you need to have good posture. But beloved, and I would fail. I have, I have mild scoliosis and I have a, I'm lazy, I think, on some level, uh, at least in this area, like, Jeremy, you're slouching. I've been told that all my life. Jeremy, you're slouching. So if it is that, I'm in trouble. I don't pass mustard, all right? Uh, it is good to have good posture, but that has nothing to do with this. There's something much more important than how a man looks or presents. It's, it's who he really is. Is he upright? And another translation of the Bible would put it this way. He must do what is right. And one more translation of the word, and, and I think it's probably the best translation, he must be just. That's the New American Standard Bible. So upright works, but just is, is maybe getting a little bit closer to the real Greek word there, the meaning of it. One writer says this concerning uh, the translation upright. Upright, or the Greek word that's translated upright in your ESV, and other Bibles, is used in the New Testament of behavior that corresponds to God's standards of what is right in all dealings of life, especially with people. Especially with people. And this, this is where that aspect of just comes in. The idea is that the man is not only seeking to do what is right, but do what is right in regard to relationships with others or circumstances with others so that he is fair and equitable and impartial in his dealings with others. In other words, this man must not play favorites. This man cannot be bought like some of our judges or politicians can. Can you imagine such a man leading over the church? And there may be men like that. If he has favorites, so you come to him with a serious concern, but you're in trouble because the one that you're having the problem with is one of his favorites. How's that going to go for you? Huh? Not so well, right? And... Um, Sadly, beloved, I've, I've seen that reality. Sometimes the favorite of the pastor is a man who I would say doesn't qualify, is the one who gives the most to the church. 
That's why I just choose not to know what you give. <laughs> In, and I'm, I'm being serious now because I don't even want that temptation. I want to I be, be able to say, even if you're the biggest giver in this church, I want to be able to tell you the truth, even though I know it's going to hurt you, and not to be thinking, oh, but if I do that, they might leave, and then we'd lose the ministry because all the money would go away. I don't even want to deal with that, so I'd just rather not know. So who knows? Maybe I will chase off the biggest giver of the church, and that's okay. As long as, as long as I'm doing it because I'm committed to the truth, not because I'm just, you know, mean. <laughs> okay? Just. But, beloved, it's not just of elders, right? Just, equitable, fair, impartial. I hope that would be what you'd want to be in your home. With your spouse. With your children. With your employees. With your coworkers, With your neighbors, Right? Next, we're moving quickly. Titus 1.8, hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, and then holy, holy. Okay, so holy is how it's translated in other translations like the NIV and the Christian Standard Bible, and even in that Bible we've had, you know, been around, had around for a long time, the New King James. But again, I think, I think a better translation, holy's fine, but it's not the exact word that's normally translated holy in the scriptures. It's not exactly the same. It's a little bit different. So the way I like it to be translated is devout. That's how it's translated in the New American Standard Bible and the NET. Again, these Bibles that I talked to you about, these are good, solid translations. And I refer to at least six or seven every time when I'm studying the scriptures uh, and trying to prepare sermons for you. Uh, devout. Devout, if you were just to look that up, it's, it's, it describes a deep religious commitment. A deep religious commitment. So as I was saying, the word here, it's not the common word that is translated holy in the New Testament. But it is, as one writer says, closely related to it. And it has the same general meaning. One writer says it was used to refer to that which was true to divine direction and purpose to genuine obedience to God's will. That's what it's describing. So de devout, I think, a deep religious commitment, specifically a deep commitment to God and all that God is um, and his scriptures is a, is a good way to understand that word. When I was trying to define it myself, I, I wrote this. I said, the devout man is serious about God and surrendering to his revealed will. By the way, where is God's revealed will? Yeah, it's right here. It's right here. Hopefully, maybe you're holding a copy of it in your lap. I, I continue to say this. The devout man, or woman for that matter, sincerely and earnestly strives to live a life that honors and pleases his sovereign Lord and Master. The devout person is not one who plays at Christianity, but instead is earnestly pursuing Christ and his glory, devout. Are you devout? Are you devout? So these are questions for you to, again, as I've said, ask of yourself. And, and more importantly, ask the Spirit of God to help you know the truth concerning these matters, to reveal them to you. Or, for that matter, ask someone who's not afraid to tell you the truth and also knows you real well. 
which may not be your spouse, <laughs> actually, because sometimes they're afraid to tell you the truth, unfortunately. A lot of relationships like that. But if you have someone who knows you well and is not afraid to tell you the truth, ask them, would you describe me as devout? And if not, then, you know, this is, how, this is how you make progress and make change. But if you just ignore these things and go on and say, you know, everything's, everything, I think it's okay. I mean, I'm here, aren't I? Yeah, you're here, and I'm glad you are. I love looking at most of all your faces. I do. <laughs> and, uh... <laughs> But the reality is, the truth is this, if you've been part of Christianity for any period of time, I'm really part of it, you're a born-again believer, you've been in church, you know that the church is filled with people who are just playing at Christianity. They're just kind of playing. They're not really serious about it. God has not called us to such things. He's not called his children to play. He's called them to be serious about him, his word, what he's called you to, the things he has for you, devout, Okay? You with me? Good, good, good. 1-8. But we're moving on. Hospital, lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and what is it? Disciplined. All right, so disciplined. If I were to look up that English word, uh, I might find this definition, showing a controlled form of behavior. Showing a controlled form of behavior. Now, Discipline is a, a, a good, again, a good translation. That's how it shows up in the ESV and the NIV, 84. Uh, there's, several, there's, a couple, uh, there's a couple different NIVs, so I always say 84 because that's the one I like and I think is solid. They got a little weird later on. Anyway, the other translation, though, the other way to translate the word is self-controlled. So I, I kind of mentioned to you this before. They use, other translations use self-controlled for this Greek word and for the other word, that is translated self-controlled in the ESV, they use the word sensible. So I like self-controlled. I think, again, discipline works. It's, it works, but self-controlled here is where I would use that English word for this Greek word. That's how it shows up in other translations. And, and, I, and I think you'll understand that it, it is the, probably a better word. And I'm not even sure why ESV chose discipline, maybe because they wanted to. I think it's because, I don't know, I didn't talk to the translators, but I think it's because they used self-control for the other Greek word, so they couldn't use it here now. So they had to find another word, discipline, because that would look weird. Self-controlled and self-controlled, what's Paul doing? Repeating himself, right? And they, didn't, they wanted to use self-control for the other word, so when they got to this one, they're like, well, we can't use self-control. Well, we, okay, discipline. I, it could be that. It could just be as simple as that. But if I go sen with sensible with the other word, then that leaves self-control to be used for this word, which I think is good. And this is why I say this, because the noun form of this word is found in Galatians 5, 23. That section right there where you might recall, it's where Paul lays out the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, yeah? He makes this long list. And one of the descriptions that are used to describe the fruit of the Spirit is translated in the ESV... This same Greek word, but the noun version, self-control. Self-control. So, The Greek word, if you uh, look at the definition of the Greek word, it, it means one of two things. Strong in a thing, strong in a thing, or masterful. So it does have that concept of discipline, right? Control. So when we think of discipline, we might, again, think of showing a controlled form of behavior. Okay, all right. But the other definition of the Greek word is just simply self-controlled with this nuance. 
in appetite. In appetite. You're like, what? You mean like they have to watch what they eat? Like the elder has to be uh, uh, careful? He has control over his eating habits? Well, that's not exactly what they're talking about, but it would certainly be included. It would certainly be included. This is what one writer says. So when you think about appetite, think about bodily passions and desires. An elder must be characterized by self-control and self-discipline. He just puts them together in every aspect of life particularly in his physical desires. One translation of the Bible, which tries to really make things readable, it's less a literal translation, but it kind of takes liberties with translating and interpreting for you to help you understand. And sometimes it does a really good job and sometimes not such a good job, but in this case, pretty good. It's the uh, NIRV. It translates this, it translates that word this way, he must control what his body longs for. So it's having the uh, inner strength, as one uh, scholar puts it, that enables him to control his bodily appetites and passions. The inner strength to control his bodily appetites and passions. One pastor uh, said this, it refers to the strength needed to hold the passions in restraint This is one of the qualities of the fruit of the Spirit and is to be the result of the Spirit-controlled walk. Galatians 5.23, where, as I told you, the noun version of the word is used there to describe what is one aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. In essence, then, the man says, self-control, as as we're talking about here, is really the self-life under the control of the Holy Spirit and fortified through a word-filled life. What does that mean, a word-filled life? Huh? Yeah, you're consuming, you're digesting, you're meditating on, you're reading, you're memorizing, you're studying the word of God. That's a word-filled life. And as you do that, the spirit of God takes that word and renders in your life the ability to exercise self-control, restraint of your passions and appetites one writer says this he lives this man an exemplary life on the outside because he submits to the holy spirit's control on the inside now that book i told you about really good book and it's the book we use for our elder training as we take our guys through that to vet them to make sure that they are indeed qualified and they understand what it is to be a leader of God's precious church in his church, a caretaker, a lover, an overseer, and all those things. He says this in regard to this qualification, and I think it's uh, good to understand. He says, an undisciplined man has little resistance. So a man who doesn't have this quality in his life, he lacks self-control. A man who lacks self-control, an undisciplined man has little resistance to sexual lust, anger, slothfulness, a critical spirit, or other base desires. And he is easy prey for the devil. Yeah. And the devil, I mean, he really basically has, you know, just a couple of things that he's doing. And he doesn't sleep. 
He's working 24-7. He, he seeks to hurt God, hurt God's people. And right now in this age, he's doing that primarily through trying to destroy the church or doing it in that, in one way he's doing that, he looks to destroy the church, ruin the church. So he would love nothing more than to, to have a church appoint unqualified men because then they'll do it for him. Or to even have a man who's qualified and then not be paying attention to his life and not be a man who's no, any longer exercising self-control and, well, it's all downhill from there. But beloved, beyond that, Satan works to ruin your families and ruin your homes. So every husband and every wife should long and strive to make sure that they don't lack self-control. And if they do, they need to, they need to be doing something about it. Recognize it's not okay. It's not okay to be giving yourself over to your passions, your earthly appetites, your bodily appetites, unchecked. In Proverbs, the wisdom literature, it says this in 25, 28, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Now, Maybe that doesn't, I think we get it, but maybe it doesn't impact us as much, probably because, you know, uh, there are no walls around Rancho Cucamonga that I know of, or Fon I live in Rancho, so I said that. There are no walls around Fontana, wherever you live, right? Do you see, like, walls fortifying the city, right? You don't, but back in the day, I mean, generally speaking, if a city didn't have walls, uh, they were always in danger, of people coming in and raiding it and stealing their supplies and taking their women and just all enslaving them. Terrible things. So a city without a wall would be not a place you'd want to live. And yet many of us live such as that in the area of self-control. So these are serious matters, beloved, serious matters. Someone says, oh, well, I was critical of them. I was, you know, I blew up at them because, you know, I just had a bad day. No, you lack self-control. Well, uh, I just can't seem, I just keep looking at pornography over and over again. You know, it's just, I don't know what to tell you. It's just, I'm a man. What do you expect of me? I expect you, Christian man, if that's what you are, to exercise self-control. You see? When uh, writer says, leaders who lack discipline, self-control, they frustrate their fellow workers as well as those they lead. Not only are they poor examples, but they cannot accomplish what needs to be done. Consequently, their flock is poorly managed and lacks adequate spiritual care. And I agree wholeheartedly, but I could easily put in there, fathers who lack discipline, or husbands, or self-control, frustrate their wives and their families as well as those they lead. Not only are they poor examples, but they cannot accomplish what needs to be done. Consequently, their family is poorly managed and lacks adequate spiritual care. Hmm? Verse 9. 
after those virtues and vices, explaining those, then in verse 9 he states this, so important, so critical. He says this, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. All right? Take it piece by piece. The trustworthy word is taught. What is that? Answer. That would be the genuine gospel or the apostolic message or the authoritative teaching of the apostles of Christ concerning the birth, life, ministry, death, resurrection, ascension, and imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ and his righteous kingdom to come. To say it another way, the trustworthy word spoken of here is the glorious message of salvation and a new and glorious life in Christ that has been made known through the chosen apostles of Christ and now is being spread throughout the world by the church. It is the message the believers on the island of Crete had heard and received, and that is the message as it had been taught that the elders, overseers, shepherds, pastors, different titles for same person, of the church, that message, it is that message that they must hold firm or cling to or be wholeheartedly committed to. The requirement here means that they are men who not only have hold of an authentic and accurate knowledge of the apostolic message, but are also fully convinced of and unwaveringly devoted to it. That's what it means. Why the requirement? Paul tells us why. He gives us a so that. This is why this, is, this, is why this has to be true. He goes on to say, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. First, give instruction in sound doctrine. Sound. Sound. Well, we sometimes use the word in this way. I hope that they return safe and sound, right? And that means in good condition, not damaged. It also can mean injured, not injured, or diseased. And that works because the Greek word means healthy. It means healthy. And so, for instance, in Luke 5.31, Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick do. And the word well there is the same Greek word. Okay? But Paul is using it metaphorically in this text in regard to doctrine or teaching. So the concept is healthy teaching. Healthy teaching as opposed to diseased or corrupted or false teaching. Perverted teaching. Teaching that does not align itself with what 
the authentic apostolic message is in some way or another. And so one translation of the Bible just translates it that way, healthy teaching in the NET. You don't have to pull it up. Healthy teaching. So, as uh, one man points out, diseased doctrine ruins the lives. Unhealthy doctrine, unhealthy teaching ruins the lives. Teaching that is not consistent with the apostolic message of the gospel, the true genuine gospel of the message concerning Christ and salvation. It ruins the lives of its adherents, while sound doctrine produces godly, clean, wholesome, healthy lives. The congregation's health and well-being depends upon elders who continually instruct in sound doctrine. So important, beloved. So, so important, okay? So important. Like, ah, you know, it's okay. It's like, if he doesn't get it right, you know, if, you know, if he doesn't really know this stuff, it's okay. Let him lead others and instruct others. No, are you kidding me? This is no game. This is no game. And of course, you know, I was thinking about our doctrinal statement or a doctrinal statement of a church, and I would, say, I would add to that and their adherence to it or the leadership's adherence to it. It's one thing to have a doctrinal statement. It's another to comply with it. Sometimes it's listed, but you're like, wait a minute. They're saying things that don't align with that. Okay, so it's both. They have it. You got to consider the doctrinal statement, and if it's, it looks accurate or you consider it's right and aligns with the apostolic message, then do they adhere to it? Do they actually teach things that are consistent with it? But too often, I, I say it is so important, and we have ours listed on our website, but too often I have spoken to Christian folks who are in search of a church, and they never mention doctrine as a consideration. They never mention doctrine. Like, I love the music. And there's nothing wrong with, lo I love music too. And I have my own preferences. And because I'm the pastor here, I get to kind of direct some of that. But there's some things that Thomas picks that maybe he likes that I'm like, eh, all right, I like it. I mean, it's not bad, but it's, it's not my thing. But that is not the thing. It is a, is a contributing factor to the church and to what you might like or not like. But my, I, people talk about the music. They talk about the building. They talk about a lot of things. And none of those things are necessarily bad or wrong. But what about the doctrine? My goodness. Let me just say this. I ha, you know, because we're gonna, my dear brother's going to come up and bless us with communion here in a second. But So I need to, I'm wrapping up. But listen. All churches are not the same. I can't, I know you're like, yeah, of course. Yeah, I, yes, of course. And I feel like I need to say it over and over again. All churches are not, just because they say Christian or say they are Christian or have the word grace in their title or some fancy cool name or whatever, and it looks like a church of sorts or something, doesn't mean it's holding to the true genuine gospel. It doesn't mean that. People just wander in. Oh, you're, you know, we're all the same. No, not necessarily. Definitely not. No. For that matter, not all Christian books are the same. My goodness. When you walk into a Christian bookstore, because you probably don't even, I don't even know. There's not that many, but we, most of the stuff's being done online now. So let me just say, when you go on to the online world and you type in Christian books to help me, please, beloved, Please know that they are not all the same 
in regard to their fidelity to the gospel, to the truth of God's word, to the apostolic message. They are not the same. Uh, it always hurts me so much to see, like, I'll get a Christian resource in the mail, and I'll see a lot of good authors, good authors, ones that hold tried and true to the true message. And then you keep flipping, and you see prosperity teachers and preachers and a bunch of stuff. <laughs> see that? That was self-control. <laughs> that was self-control. That is so, is so damaging and so hurtful to people. Be careful. be careful beloved you need to know the word of God this is why we're doing our best to educate instruct and pound it into you until it just oozes out of you so that you will not be led astray and that you will have the truth that will set you free and make you healthy anyway in regard though to he must know it. He must know it as it has been taught. He must hold on to that. So the idea is that he knows it. But it's also he must hold it firm. Hold it firm. The, the term implies this, an unshakable, fervent conviction and commitment. Which I would say comes as a result of that study of the Spirit of God and knowing it and, and, and making it your own. It's not just something you've heard, but you yourself have studied it and become convinced of these truths as the Spirit of God has worked in your heart to do that very thing. So the elder then cannot, and for that matter, no Christian should, but the elder certainly cannot have a loose hold on the authentic apostolic message or teaching, meaning that not really a fervent conviction about these things. Or if they do, because if they do, they will be tempted to embrace false teaching. Because false teaching never comes like, wow, that's obviously false teaching. They make it sound good. I mean, I know it doesn't sound exactly like what you teach, but here, doesn't it sound nice? But if, and so if you're like, uh, yeah, maybe, yeah, it kind of does. I mean, I don't, I'm not really holding on that tight to this thing anyway. I mean, why don't I just step over here and try this out? And then you pick that junk up and begin to teach it to your church. No. They'll be, they'll be tempted to embrace false teaching when it comes along, and they will, and they will, and this is very important, they will also, if they do not hold it firm or have this fervent conviction and commitment concerning the truths of the gospel message, they will not have the nerve to rebuke, refute, and reprove those who contradict the true gospel or message concerning the one and only Savior of sinners, Jesus Christ. They won't have the nerve. They'll be like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I know he's saying something different, but no. You're saying something different? Mm-mm. Not in this house. You see what I'm saying? Like, if you're loosey-goosey with certain things with your kids, right, then they come along and they push you a little bit, and you're like, and there are some things that you're going to be loosey-goosey with. And you'll be like, eh, I don't know, is it that big of a deal, right? And they, you let them do it, right? But what if everything concerning your kids was that way? I bet, I bet in your homes you have certain things that you have very strong convictions about. Yes? All of you, right? 
And so when the kid comes along, he's like, and your mama, and your dad, and your, you know, they go the one, the other, and they play that little game back and forth. And you're like, no and no. I said no, and nothing's going to change my no, right? Because it's that type of strong conviction. And if you bring it up again, I will love on you and show you God's grace <laughs> and uh, show you the error of your ways, my dear child, my dear sweet child. Hopefully, yeah, something like that. But you understand the difference, right? Of strongly held convictions and just kind of like, eh, or opinions, no. Look, it's okay to have opinions and have loosey-goosey ideas about other things. It is not okay concerning the gospel or the apostolic message concerning Christ, God's salvation. Not okay. And of course, the situation, and we'll look at it later as we move on, but when you look at verse, the verse that follows, in verse 10, in Titus, he says, for there, after he says that, he says, and here's why I'm also saying this, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced. What kind of men are going to do that? Loosey-goosey men? Who hold their convi- don't really have convictions about such things? They're like, eh, I don't know. I mean, that's just what, that's, that's what they, isn't, aren't all of our truths equal in weight and value? No! One person has the truth, the other does not. Anyway. The elders of a church have the weighty responsibility and wonderful privilege, beloved, of not only spiritually feeding and strengthening the folks who make up a local church, but also protecting or guarding them. And guarding them. But they cannot, will not do that unless they are men who hold firm to the genuine gospel first delivered by the apostles and recorded and preserved for us by God in this thing that we call the Bible. Dear brother, come lead us. There you are. Lead us in communion.